Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Alana Newhouse. Alana is the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine, which she found in 2009. She recently edited, along with Stephanie Butnick, the recently released book, The Hundred Most Jewish Foods, A Highly Debatable List. Welcome, Alana. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I'll start with full disclosure. I love the book. It's, Thank you. It's just, I want to use the word delicious, but you'll forgive me if I do. No, it's perfect. Okay. So the, the construct, I think, is really wonderful. In my mind, and I hope it's okay to say that it's sort of part cultural anthropology, part oral history, part cookbook, and all together, it's just a great read. And I'm, I'm wondering how you came to the project and also to the editorial structure, which I hope you can talk a little bit about. Sure. Well, the project actually started online. A year ago, Tablet published a list on the website, which offered the book its bones. The list was the actual list of the foods with entries, but the website had no recipes. It had a lot of debate. A lot of history, a lot of cultural anthropology, as you very helpfully noted. But what we didn't have is we didn't tell anybody how to make any of these foods. And one of the reasons why the project turned into a book was because people wanted to see both the debate and how these foods sort of inspire a much larger conversation. And they also wanted to find ways to bring it literally into their own homes and kitchens with some directions on how to make some of the foods. So the book has a lot of stuff that the website doesn't, but the genesis of the project was in that effort. It's funny that you mention, because one of my later questions was going to be, that I do think that they tell a larger story. And in that construct, they're so Jewish in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's, it's really, to me, one of the best parts of the book, if you actually sit down to read it, is the way that many of the entries speak to each other sometimes disagreeing with each other and sometimes adding and enriching the way that an individual food is presented. But you kind of have to really get into it to taste that. (laughs) And I think food is such, you know, Jewish food, it's like so much of, I I think it's safe to say, Yiddish and modern Jewish culture, because it's constantly evolving. It borrows from place. And to my mind, it's a really exciting time right now for Jewish food. There's a whole new generation of foodies, chefs, food purveyors, the sort of melding of Sephardic and Ashkenazic. I wonder what your thoughts are about the current time and the timeliness of the book. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel two things at once, which I guess is a very Jewish reaction to have. But the first is, is that you're absolutely correct. There's almost no way to deny that we're in a time uh, where food in general in our culture is being appreciated and some might say fetishized to a great extent. And Jewish food is no exception there. I think the difference with Jewish food is that we are also living in a time where Jewish identity is a very complicated set of feelings and ideas and experiences for a lot of people. And in a funny way, food both enables an engagement. I think people are bring to food a bravery about engaging that they may not bring to other iterations of Jewish identity. But it's also very challenging, and I think, and I would argue, very deepening. Yeah, if you want to just sort of on a lark, get yourself some herring one afternoon and feel like you're engaging with something deep, you're probably just engaging with nostalgia, which is important and it's a good feeling. But what a lot of what's going on now is something that's much deeper, an engagement with the 
what I would say, a very pleasurable, exciting, broad, dark, challenging history that is evoked in Jewish food. My favorite example from the book is the inclusion of adafina, which is a Sabbath stew that was made by conversos in Spain and Portugal. And the amazing thing about adafina is that when Jews converted to Christianity either forcibly or voluntarily, many of them still retained Jewish tradition. And one of the ways that they retained that tradition was by not eating pork and not cooking on the Sabbath. And they would make this stew called adafina, which was a Sabbath stew. And the challenge for them was that they often had servants or neighbors who would watch to see when they made their stew and whether or not they used salt pork, which was a common ingredient in stews in Spain and Portugal. And if they saw that they were not using pork and were not cooking on the Sabbath, then they would report them to the authorities. So the idea that food is something that's kind of a frippery or an add-on onto our idea of culture or society is simply not true. For many Jews throughout history, food was a vital expression of identity and oftentimes something that could put them in danger. So their, their hold on it is important. And it's significant, and I think that to, to ignore that part of history feels to me to be just limiting, and it disables our ability to understand the fullness of Jewish history. I so agree with what you're saying. I mean, I didn't want to attach nostalgia or nostalgic whatever to any of what's in this book, because I think it deserves a lot more than that. It opens up, really, an understanding, and, and the stew is one of the pieces that really brought that home for me. It's amazing. I had no idea about that, but then it makes me think, yeah, food um, and cultural heritage, but also, you know, situations where people look at you to decide whether you're going to have bacon or ham. Yep. And how sort of, can I use the word passive aggressive? There's just something about it that's so tied. So I wonder... How hard was it to with the writers and the editing process for this? What was that like? Because these are really strong, very interesting stories that prompt a larger conversation. Well, because I'm, a, I'm an editor by nature, so I happen to be one of those people walking around the world who love the writers. They're very difficult. <laughs> I'm married to one um, who's very difficult, but also brilliant, and I love working with writers. So in general, the process is a pleasure. In in this case, the process was an absolute dream. And the reason is, I think, the way that we did it. We, we did a couple of things right. The first of which was the project had a story editor on it named Gabby Gershenson, who's a really brilliant, generous, warm, fun food writer and editor who worked at Rachel Ray and Savour. And she just is, she comes to this with enormous knowledge and enormous professionalism. And Gabby and Stephanie and I sat together. The first thing we decided to do was to kind of throw the doors open wide. We said, let's put every single idea we have on the list. And I think, you know, in the very beginning, we had over 400 foods on a big master list. And then we said, now let's, we're going to call every food historian, every food writer we can think of, a bunch of chefs, and just in general, cultural historians also, um, and historians of Jewish life. And we're literally going to ask them for the most open-ended thoughts they have. They can get as general or as specific as they want. So they could write to us and say, 
you know, make sure chicken soup is on there, or they can write a whole treatise and tell us why this particular kind of stuffed meat needs to be on it. And what we then did was we had months of taking in those thoughts from all of these disparate people, many of whom are not, they didn't end up writing entries, but they were so important to the conception of the book and to how we thought about things, particularly a bunch of historians. And we then started to narrow it down. And you start to see patterns. So, for example, you see the Kishka entry is actually an entry for Kishka, Dharma, Helzol, basically the whole universe of stuffed foods, stuffed meat, because conceptually we saw them as all the same thing. Originally on our Excel sheet, I think there are five different uh, iterations of that. And then we, also, we, we realized that they all sort of belonged together. Um, another very controversial entry, which you might know, you might notice that there is no entry for matzo ball soup. Mm-hmm. There is an entry for chicken soup, and there is an entry for matzo balls. But there is no separate entry for matzo ball soup, which was weeks of fighting. But, but I think that ultimately, and ultimately we made editorial choices, which were our judgment. And part of the fun of putting the book out is that we do know that people are going to disagree with us. And we want people to disagree with us because we want people to bring their own experiences and opinions to these entries. Um, we think that would be the real gift of the book. Well, I'm always happy when somebody is brazen enough to say, I don't like Google. So, right, right. <laughs> so that's okay. Right. Michael Solomonoff is definitely brazen mm. enough. <laughs> and I applaud that. How hard was it to whittle the list to 100? Very hard. Very, very hard. Any that you um, left on the floor that you really wanted? Um, yes. So... Personally speaking, um, my paternal grandparents are, were Yiddish-speaking immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe, and my maternal family um, were Ladino-speaking immigrants from what was then Turkey and what's now Macedonia. I grew up with my maternal grandmother and cooking primarily in her kitchen. So the foods that I grew up with were Sephardic foods. There are no barekas on the list. The barekas did not make them on. And more importantly, as Leah Koenig, who's another really essential person to this project, has pointed out, there's a whole universe of savory Sephardic pastries that didn't make the list that I feel the loss of. So that would be, I think, probably my number one cutting room floor regret. Mm -hmm. And you have amazing writers. It's Mm -hmm. quite an assortment. And, again, did they all come to this with very strong convictions about the food? Yes. I mean, part of what happened was is that Gabby Gershenson has some great contacts in the food world, and she reached out to people just to say we were doing the project. And in the original phase, she didn't ask anyone to do entries. She just said, we're doing this project. Do you have any strong feelings about any particular Jewish foods or about the project in general? Based on who responded, we saw who was passionate about it. And... Frequently, they gave us the ideas of what they wanted to write about. So Amanda Hester and Meryl Stubbs knew they wanted to write about brisket. And their entry, they, they may have the best first sentence of any entry in the book. So, you know, it's some of it was us thinking about it, and some of it was the writers themselves and what they wanted to write. 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how to, what was the process for the recipes? Gabriella shepherded that. Most of the recipes were overseen. The testing and creation of the recipes were overseen by her. There are a few of them that are from home cooks, including my own grandmother's recipe for our hominados, mm-hmm. which doesn't really require much of a recipe other than whatever detritus is around your kitchen. Um, but we still need to actually, we need to actually include a recipe. So I gave mine, but then Gabby tested it and made sure that it worked out. Again, it's, it's just such a beautiful pairing, um, no pun intended, um, of the writing and the recipes. Myra Kalman, I don't think of her as a foodie, but she's mm-hmm. one of the people I adore her work. Um, and I want to read this line, which you have on the back of the book. Herring have been swimming around in large schools for thousands of years. Occasionally a predator comes and eats them. And yet they survive. The ultimate Jewish fish. It mm-hmm. says so much. Myra's singular, that I almost feel like I could ask her about anything in the world, and she would come out with one of those brilliant uh, reactions to it. But that said, that particular line is also one of my favorites. Yeah. Also, I love that you included kosher salt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there any, uh, there must have been a debate, or how did uh, well, that find its way? Interestingly, no. So one of the things that we realized right at the beginning, what I knew was that it was not a list of the best Jewish foods or the most popular Jewish foods, that this was going to be a list of the foods with the deepest Jewish significance. And the way that we understood the history of Jewish food in that vein was that part of the reason why Jewish food developed in the way that it did, and in such a kind of multifaceted and diverse way, was because, well, partly because Judaism is first and foremost a religion that then became a culture and then became a people, but it's because effectively the group of people that made this food had a series of boundaries that they had to put on how and what they ate. So there was the law against mixing meat and milk. There's a law against cooking on the Sabbath or holidays. And also there's a law in Passover against having bread. So much of the uniqueness of Jewish food comes from the creativity that people, primarily women, brought to the originating of food that could be both pleasurable while also staying within these bounds. And obviously, one of the other bounds is kosher meat. The idea that a whole culinary universe is extremely salty <laughs> comes because we have, we have rules. Mm-hmm. And those rules require the salting of meat, which completely changes the taste of the entire cuisine, no matter where Jews lived. So actually, interestingly, once we, because we had that philosophical mission statement, the idea that kosher salt would be on it was almost perfectly obvious. Again, it's a really great compilation. The book is The 100 Most Jewish Foods. It's available now across the country, yes? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Wonderful. Well, thank you for the book. Thank you for joining us. And before I let you go, also, thank you for Tablet Magazine. It's great. thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great. And um, we look forward to your next project. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Carol Renard. 
NEH Oral History Project Coordinator. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode number 141, Lisa Newman's March 31, 2017 conversation with Alan Rickman about kosher pickles on the Lower East Side. Until next time, be well, be healthy, Zeitgeist.